This is the Strode College Digital T Level podcast. Learning a second loads of times. If you're in support, one of the big things in support in terms of financial things anyway is, is training people. Right? If you've got the skills and you train people, you get paid quite good money to do that. Lots of organisations do training. Obviously, um, you had a, a brief spell with Mr. Ripper. Mr. Ripper's gone off and done training online because it obviously pays a lot of money. Do you know Keith? No. no. Um, he let us borrow a stapler. Yeah. That was one of the key things that's happened because of, not necessarily because of, because during lockdown, uh, there's been a huge proliferation of online training companies. Right? So lots of, and that's some of the problems why it's hard to find staff in schools and colleges these days, because people have gone off to do these online training. There's just been loads of companies. I think they may disappear at the moment. These online training companies, you know, they don't, the overheads are really low. You just need somebody in front of a computer with a webcam and you can charge people loads of money to train them. Increasingly, and, and again, because English is the sort of de facto language of business, loads of people all over the world want online English classes. So learning is becoming really powerful stuff. And most of you, you know, you can sign up to any university around the world and do free courses online. There was, some years ago, there was talk of these um, massive online open communities, MOOCs, uh, that was going to change the world. But I don't think it happened that way, but it is quite a powerful. Oh, yeah. Medical aircraft. Right, so the key thing then, advantages, this is sort of questions for exam, advantages of personal professional development. Once you embark on your training, your career in, in data or um, support, you will be in... In, enrolled in improving your skill set over time. Now it could be that you improve your skills in order to move on to another company because your company doesn't pay you enough, or it could be you have to have those skills in order to move on. So again, within within this sector, within education, you've got to do continuous professional development. I obviously have to go on courses now and again to improve my classroom management technique, or I have to go on courses to find out what the new specifications are, how to deliver them. So it's all about development over time and learning how to do the job. Uh, so increased industry and sector competence. If if you're working in the support sector and you don't know the latest and greatest things that are coming down the line, how can you possibly support your customers? So again, if you're working with customers and they say to you, "What do you do? You think we should upgrade to you know Windows 11.25?" Then they should expect you to know, be one step ahead, even if you and then you'd be one step ahead of them again. So. Actually, I'd wait because it's not very good. There's all sorts of problems with it. So wait until 11.5 comes out, etc. So your industry experience and knowledge is going to make you more valuable in your job and help with customer service, particularly if you're doing data support and training. So increased industry sector competence and knowledge is obviously going to make you more valuable to yourself personally, so you can move up the ladder and get more money, but also within the organisation, become more valuable. They get more women. Increased employability potential. Again, if you're, as some of you are now on LinkedIn, if you go through life and you add different jobs to LinkedIn, LinkedIn is this sort of working website, networking website. As you add another skill, if you update your profile on LinkedIn, you'll suddenly get hundreds of, because they've got algorithms running in the background, you'll suddenly get hundreds of jobs thrown at you. Oh, you're now skilled in this particular skill set. You now know how to do this Cisco element. You suddenly get jobs thrown at you. So again, upskilling, increasing your employability potential. If you, if you learn the latest and greatest things, it does improve, and again, I just, as a matter of interest, uh, if I've got it, maybe, just to show you, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it up on Moodle. 
So the Southwest has a technology organisation which, which looks at the industries in the Southwest, particularly in technical terms, to look at what kind of jobs are available and how it will impact on you. Right? And at the end of this, the only reason, well not the only reason, the main reason we do this course is to get a job, so you need to be looking at those things. So Southwest Tech is this organisation that's government funded to look at the technical sector and look for jobs and employability. And they just produced a report, which I'll put up on Moodle, which shows that the number one job in the Southwest, in terms of tech, is data analytics, yeah. data science. 56%. The lowest job, technical, 3%. Anyone want to guess? Support. Strangely, no, Bitcoin. There's no interest in it in the Southwest. The biggest one, though, is data, data science, right? And again, my, we've had a real problem finding uh, employment for one of their second-year students uh, for doing software development, but the government's put out a memo saying if you can't find anyone, we'll take them. So the Department of Trade and Industry have taken him. He's over in M-Block at the moment. He's got a laptop from the civil service. But what they want him to do is data science using this program called R, which apparently is the industry standard for data analytics. So that's something of it. Sorry, interrupt. We've got Microsoft Project 2016 in there. Okay, so that solves that problem. And well, I don't know whether these guys need. Yeah, we'll take a look at Microsoft Project and whether it needs to be installed elsewhere. But anyway. Oh, that's true. I'll, I'll on my gut myself have to do and just have one lesson on after Easter on how to do deck charts. Yeah. Excellent. I don't think we have to do deck charts. Alright, so employability. So again, you need to look at those things. I'll put the stuff up on Moodle. It's quite interesting about the jobs that are in the southwest and how to get those types of jobs. But by far and away the highest was data, data science. And again, we talked about data being the new oil. If you can take that oil and refine it into petrol, then it's obviously valuable, and that's the way it's looking at it. So if you've got a load of data, if you can do something with that data and make sense out of it, then you can charge a lot of money for that, for that intelligence. Um, so, and as, stuff, you know, as more and more data comes out in different formats, then you've got to keep your skill set up. So if, if these, these programs keep coming out from manipulating data, you've got to be on top of that game. And in terms of the support side of it, the rest of you, you, know, you need to know what the latest greatest pieces of kit are, what's coming down the line, you need to be experimenting with things like 5G to know how they work and how to support them. Because again, if you go into a support job and they say, this, the client is, wants to work on this particular thing, you've never heard of it, then it's not going to look very good on your job. So you need to keep up to date on the skill sets. Uh, achieving accreditation to specific professional disciplines. You've all been signed up for Cisco. Cisco is the leading industry supplier for equipment in networking. So if you've got an, an industry... Uh, certification from Cisco is obviously quite valuable. One thing I'm exploring maybe for next year um, is to do Microsoft Office Specialist. It's not difficult to do, but if you go on a job search, it says all these different characteristics, doesn't care whether you've got GCSEs, but if you've got MOS, Microsoft Office Specialist, there are loads of jobs because it's a really good skill. Right, um, and we'll hopefully do that for free next year. But industry accreditation is just a way, so if you go to a company, say I've got Cisco, I've got MCSE, which are the Microsoft Server Specialists, etc., etc., they'll you know very valuable, right? Um, and one one of the qualifications I think I've got one of those systems it's two thousand pounds to do it, and we're getting it for free. So again, that's how valuable these things are. Um, other professional disciplines, I suppose, is up, upskilling in terms of how you manage collaborative software, all those different tools. You know, depending on what type of support you go into, the data you go into. 
uh, and then maintaining currency and relevance to the industry. So again, keeping your skills up to date. If you don't know what the latest and greatest technology is, then you're not very valuable to the company. They won't send you out on jobs because they'll say, well, it doesn't really know what you're doing. There are downsides to that, again. You know, some, if you, you know too much, you might sort of undermine yourself in terms of position, but it's never never bad to have the top of skills, I think, in any industry. Um, achieving access to specific professional bodies. So the main professional body for you lot is the BCS, the British Computer Society. Um, but there are, obviously we looked at the IEEE. If you get into electrical data or electronics and things like that, the IEEE is the organization where you become a member of that. There are various professional bodies that you can join and they will give you various things. One of the key things for joining those types of organizations like IEEE is that they will give you sort of protection insurance. So if you have some, some sort of problem at work, they will protect you against some sort of uh, legal problems. And then knowledge of and adherence to industry standards. So again, how do you, what kind of protocols are you supposed to be using? What kind of standards are you working against? If you're working within electronics, obviously there's certain voltages and things you need to be aware of. Uh, but in terms of equipment, again, if you're fixing computers, you won't be, a ridiculous example, but you won't be putting in power supplies that put out too much voltage, etc. So you need to know what the standards are for the different equipment you're dealing with. And even Safara, and most of you probably do this anyway, because you look at these, well, I imagine you look at this equipment all the time, but when people ask you for specifications to fix a computer, you should be able to tell them what kind of hard drive, what kind of data throughput it's got, what kind of storage, lifetime, MTBF, and all that stuff, all the, the analytics. So, so knowledge of these industry standards. If people say to you they want this network wired up, you don't wire it up with 10 meg cables, because it'd be total nonsense. So you need to know what standard they should be working towards. So you need to know the Ethernet standards and all those other bits and pieces. If you're putting a Wi-Fi in place, what are the frequencies that Wi-Fi can use, those types of things. So the standards are how these different equipments work. And they work because there's an industry standard. If, if I've got, and I've used this example all the time, if there were no industry standards for internet email, I couldn't send anyone email from my Linux phone because they never, they'd receive a load of goobly-goob at the end. But because there are industry standards in terms of the way that email is formatted and sent and received, means that any email from any client will go to some other client and always be in the right format and understandable because of standards. And again, I can't go and look at websites in California if there weren't any standards, for example, because all that stuff would come back and they say, no, we don't use that type of, we don't use HTML in America, so my screen would just be full of bogan nonsense. Go on. Think about your American flag, right? Yeah. I mentioned California. Right, so 7.2, areas of emerging technology, innovative applications, commercial, domestic context. As Wilfield just demonstrated, obviously one of his key things is augmented and virtual reality, all this stuff. The power of the computers that you've got in pocket now is to the point where you can do all these things very easily. Only a few years ago, and it wasn't that long ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, I saw some of the first, um, when they first came out, a company I was working for, we, because we, we did technology qualifications, we bought one of the first uh, virtual reality headsets. Um, it's a bit cheesy, but it's still, it still was pretty impressive for the time. Now, all that stuff would be predated. It's one of the, it was the, one of the evaluation sets for those virtual reality headsets. So, how we store information. They are, we've mentioned this before, and again, this is why you need to keep looking at the news, which I go on like a broken record. They are currently exploring the ability to store stuff in DNA. Right? And that, they have trialled it and it does work. You can, 
DNA is just encoded proteins, right? So, and they're massive, massive proteins full of different types of protein uh, combinations. So it's easy to replicate that and actually manipulate those protein molecules into a certain order, just like you would on a hard drive, and then read that off. Can you again, you can store dillions and dillions yeah. of bits of data in DNA. Why don't they just change everyone's DNA so everyone's small? That's You'd have to change every cell in your body. That's what CRISPR is, though. It's, gen it's genetic altering. So you could like. We did talk about it this morning. There are moral and ethical arguments against that, but people are doing it. You know, again, and there is there is moral. But that's that's the thing is then it's like ge genetically altering them as kids or genetically altering them as they are, right? But that's the thing is then the second that one genetically altered person is then, you know having kids, those are now edited genes in the gene pool, right? Would they make it extra small? The kid would be extra small. Potentially. I don't know. The, the argument is either, because you've got two sides to the argument, if I'm a parent and I know that my baby's going to be born with some disability or Down syndrome or something, I'd prefer them to be able to genetically modify that baby so that it wasn't born that way, yeah? yeah. So that's an argument morally. So that, nobody would argue with that, so that's fine. But if I say I want my, my child to be born to be better than everyone else, be strong and all this other stuff, More arms. It, becomes, yeah, it becomes a bit of a difficult argument. Then, it's, then it, there's a really interesting argument. Then in the future, say this is then the norm, is it then more unethical to have your, ch your child not genetically altered mm -hmm. because then you're not giving your child the best, you know, best yeah. quality of life? It does get to those. Well, it's so quite an interesting well. debate, really. It's, okay. really. it's really interesting because they um, they've already done genetically <laughs> altered um, children in I think it was in China. They made um, a pair of twins that are immune to HIV. Yeah. So already the door has been opened that can now no longer be shut. Yeah. And as you say, CRISPR can yeah, do that. Exactly. Well, it's there. The technology there. Is, it's just now a question of mob, moral and ethical. Yeah. Very difficult one. Um, but again, DNA, DNA can be stored millions and millions of bits of data, so you can encode DNA with sort of information. But again, morally and ethically, obviously for spy work, you can encode some people's DNA with all sorts of encrypted data and send them on their way. Nobody would be able to detect it. So different uses for it. But again, if you can store a DNA image uh, within things, but again, Ethically and morally, would you sort of clone, you know, um, hamsters or whatever to be some sort of storage devices? Yes. Like your computer into the hamster for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So again, there are arguments about this, but but it is technically possible. Yeah, they are currently using oh, that. We've got Windows DNA 10 hamster. We need to reinstall Windows. Plug my hamster in. Not again. Right. Hamsters uh, got away. Got my hamsters on. My hamsters overheated. <laughs> Quantum computing, very complex. Uh, four states. Four different states, yeah. Quantum all that stuff. But it, it is exponentially more power and resources than regular computers to the point where, and again, in terms of problem, because this is about emerging technology and what to do about them, quantum computing at the moment, quantum, even a basic quantum computer is much better than these massive supercomputers that currently exist. So if, and this is the arms race, if you like, at the moment, if some countries are currently developing quantum computer technology in order to break into the American systems, for example, uh, they've got to, to work against that. It's really difficult. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a competition now to see who can get the quantum computing out and working and functional in the best in least bit of time. And it will be a battle against who makes that happen. Um, and the key thing for, for quantum computing is in terms of cryptography. Cryptography, uh, creating these hash tables of encrypted data, takes a huge amount of processing power. And again, on the internet at the moment, I think the 
The standard for the internet is 56 bits of data that's encrypted in order for, for HTTPS. I think you can get 128-bit systems, but again, it's really difficult to break down. A quantum computer could do it like that in a millisecond. So again, it's how, how much can you encrypt data to, to protect it? And again, I don't want people breaking into my bank account when I'm online, so I hope that that encryption is pretty, pretty good, yeah. cryptography. If, if it's embedded and crypto, cryptographically made in quantum computers, it's almost impenetrable, so they think. So that's, that's the main use of it. So this is emerging technology. Quantum computing is about security, really, more than anything else. Uh, Internet of Things, every single device has an operating system in it. Um, most cars have a, a fairly functional operating system involved, don't they, in terms of their navigational systems and the, even, the, even the latest ones are all built into the clock face and everything. Every device, I mentioned about the you know, devices to different ends, I mentioned about the, the toilets in Japan and stuff that monitor your outputs in order to modify your inputs. If if the toilet picks up excessive amounts of cholesterol in your diet, in your, your number twos, it will actually then send a message to your online shopping thing in order to stop you with slightly healthier food. So that's the sort of internet of things. If a device can connect to the internet, then it can actually connect with other things. Artificial intelligence, come on, stay with me, people. Artificial intelligence increasingly. Again, a simple example of artificial intelligence is making uh, sports predictions or making <laughs> sports reports. Right, I, I can write sport reports really easily. It was a game of two halves, everyone gave 100%, etc., etc. et cetera. So most sports reports on websites are written by AI. They're not written by sports reports. Um, artificial intelligence is getting much more sophisticated. Again, I just read in the news today that one of the Google projects has just painted some paintings, uh, abstract paintings, which are, and loads of people have looked at them, loads of professional artists, and they didn't realise it was done. Yeah, yeah, what did you do to my math? So it's getting more and more sophisticated. <laughs> but there are problems with AI, aren't there? The AI that was let loose on Twitter, which <laughs> is crazy. I heard one of the students in, in in the transition group did a bit of research on it and they said there was a follow-up to that one that they did it again um, and again it went a bit too early in the end. Although it's only saving grace is at the end it was a Microsoft product that said you should be using Linux. That's what it picked up on the internet. Um, XR, oh, I've forgotten. Somebody remind me. XR. Anyone? I've heard. Uh, AR. It's, it's a mixture of all yeah, of them. Yeah, mixture of all of them. AR. Augmented, yeah. virtual, all those stuff together. It probably says on the link, doesn't it? Extreme reality. Maybe. Extreme. Okay. Artificial reality. Again, I mentioned this before. I think we talked about this very recently. Very useful for people like people that have phobias. So if you give them some sort of simulated environment where they might go out to the real side of the world, they use virtual reality. Uh, or augmented reality in order to get used to that situation and then they can go out and then mixed, mixed reality a mixed reality mix, which again was just displayed on Wilfrid's phone uh, blockchain blockchain obviously the most obvious example of blockchain is uh, with bitcoin and those types of cryptocurrencies but increasingly it's been used for other purposes isn't it 
Um, one of the key reasons, one of the key things for blockchain is that the government, UK government, exploring is in ter terms of keeping people's data safe. The blockchain is a really secure way of, of exchanging and manipulating data. No, no. A really secure way of, of, yeah, of co covering yourselves. Thank you very much. Uh, right, so the blockchain is a really secure way of, it, it, it's a distribution of computing power and processing and security so that no one person can manipulate and ma message that or mess about that data. Um, I guess you know, there's various examples of that and the, the, the big example at the moment is the big pyramid scheme is these NFTs where people create these, in, these individual things. Um, the best example, I've, the best explanation I've seen of NFTs actually is in the Beano. I tell you about this. Oh, with the farts, the, 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 the Niffy um, fart trans, Niffy fart transaction. Yes. What? The good microtransactions. So the blockchain is just a secure network where you can exchange things very secure way. Cannot be interfered with. In theory, anyway. 5G, obviously, just faster data transfer, exchange of stuff, slightly higher frequencies, etc. Remember, I mentioned in the news that the Chinese have now developed 6G based on um, terahertz signals, really, really high frequency signals. They use it for their intercontinent missiles, so they can be, I guess, controlled from outer space, because they go up outer space and come back in, don't they? So they need a really strong signal to get there, and a terahertz signal is really powerful enough to go from A to B. But 5G increasingly, and on Moodle, just to be timely, I think. Open up the Open up the I realise you can't see it very clearly on the board, so hopefully you can look at this later on. This is an example I picked up today of 5G technology that they're using in inner cities. All of the street lampposts will have 5G enabled capability. They'll have an EV charger built into them so you can charge things you go by. They'll have sort of visual displays telling you what's going on in terms of city traffic and, and pollution. A call button in case you're attacked. So again, air quality sensors and all this stuff, all of this is capable. All of this is capable because of 5G, right? The faster the communication, the easier it is to communicate information back and forth between different things. Now, what, what about monitoring? And monitoring. Who wants to do it? Do we not get to that? Is that, is that not in the plans yet? Of course it is. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that later. Yeah, but monitoring is also useful, isn't it? Where are people? Can you track people? Um, if I, we were tracking you when you did it. Yeah, <laughs> 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 <laughs>
and functionality of 5G, obviously it's downsized, depends on who's running it. And then finally drones. I mentioned before, again, interesting articles in the news about this stuff. Make it a potion. 5G, I mean drones, sorry, in agriculture they're used extensively. Right, it's very difficult to farmers to go out and work out how much they need. Fertilizer is incredibly expensive, so if you waste it, you can't get money back. You send a drone out, it goes back and forth across your land, and it comes back with an exact map, and then you just map in the data, and you just plug all that stuff into your tractor, and away you go, and it fertilizes exactly what you need. Fertilizer is not fresh, it's not nice. And drones, again, the other example I saw in the news some time ago, which I thought was quite interesting, is when they have big forest fires up in sort of in the, in the rainforests, they just drop these little plants out from drones. They don't need to send people up there to dig holes and stuff. And then 90% of them grow. So it's really effective. So drones increasingly are becoming effective. Of course, there are problems with them. When they first came out, anyone could fly a drone. Now you need to get a license from the FEA, the actual um, air, airport authorities, because people keep flying around airports and stuff. It's obviously against the law now. It wasn't initially. Why? All right, so there may be a question on the exam. Guys, come on. There might be a question on the exam about explaining one or two or three of these different technologies, or it might be an essay-type question. Given that these emerging technologies are coming out, what is the future looking like in terms of data or technical support? Most of those devices are quite difficult to manage, I would imagine. So your tech... Going back to learning, if you don't understand these things, this is where all the jobs are. If you can't keep up with data with the news and figure out what the new emerging technologies are, you could be putting yourself out of a job, which you don't want particularly. Right? So you need to keep up to date. What type of technologies are coming out? Can I find out how to use them? Can I find out how to support them? Can I keep myself in a job down the road? Right, 7.3. Any questions on that one about emerging technologies and how they impact in terms of learning? So types of reflection, and this is going on to learning about how you learn. We've done this quite a bit, I think. Um, types of reflection and creativity techniques and how they influence practice within the digital sector. So basically, how do you learn and what is the best way to learn? Very, very appropriate since you're getting ready for your exams, I suppose. So we looked at these, I think, briefly some time ago. First of all, you've got Kolb's experiential learning cycle. You may have a question on the exam saying, what are the four stages of Kolb? Or, what are the different types of learning experience and how do they, how do they function? So concrete, concrete experience. If I whack you around the head, that's a fairly concrete experience. You know, you experience it physically, right? It's not, you're gonna, not going to forget it in a hurry. Once we go to court, whose story sticks? Depends how hard you hit me, I'll um, get it. But that's a concrete experience, isn't it? If you if you have a if you're driving you have a traffic accident, you, you remember that quite clearly. That's an experience you won't forget too quickly. The last thing I saw was Paul's fist coming at my So, <laughs> so that's the physical, concrete, very visceral experience, right? From that, hopefully hopefully you'll reflect on that. So what what could I have done to stop that happening, right? It's not probably not a good example. So Dodge. how could I stop that happening? When I when I built my network last time, really? I had all these problems. Right? You note those problems down, you reflect on them. So I won't plug in these devices ever again because they just don't work. Or I won't use that operating system, I won't use this, that, the other. Right? So reflect on it. You learn from what you do. The other aspect of reflecting is watching somebody else do it who's experienced at it. And then you can actually learn from their more skilled experience. So reflecting is also about watching and learning. Then we've got the abstract. 
Abstraction, we've talked about this before, I think, and we in an earlier one. So abstracting is making some type of some type of representational model, Bailey, a representation model so that you can make a starting point about how to begin with. If I make a representation model, one of the ones we talked about is the OSI. The OSI doesn't exist anywhere. It's just an abstraction of the network and how the network functions, right? There is no such thing as the OSI, it's just a model somebody's made up saying this is how the, the actual network works in a rough term. So that's an abstraction. Right, and then actively, you put all those ideas into practice. So you, you have a real bad experience building a network, you reflect on that, make a few notes, you look at abstract models like the OSI and say, oh, that's what, I forgot about the transport layer, and then you put it into practice and you make everything work nicely. Right, so that's Cole's experiential or experience-based learning model, right? The more you experience and watch and reflect, the better it gets. Bailey, not on the piece. Yep. Got that, Colts? Good. Look forward to that, getting a good mark on the exam. Is this on Moodle? It yes. will be. It is on the air. Gibbs reflective cycle, six parts, right? So the first one was about experiencing things. It's about experience and reflective experience. This one's more about reflecting on different bits and pieces that they go through. So first of all, description. Again, this is why I give you these notebooks. If you write stuff down, you tend to remember it. But that physical act of writing will stick in your mind, hopefully. Or if not, when you go back and write it again, it will come back to, oh, I wrote that before sometime, somewhere. You should remember it. Right, so description. This is why if you're doing, if you're writing, if the first thing you should do if you're trying to troubleshoot a network is to write down what you currently understand about the network. So what cables being used, what kind of equipment, what kind of um, operating systems, what type of applications, etc. Right, so you write it down, describe it, you explain the process as best you can based on what's currently available. Right? Uh, you then go in to record your feelings, so uh, I'm feeling this, this network's in a real mess, or I'm feeling it's not too bad, there's only a few problems. So you then reflect on how bad the situation is, I guess. Uh, then you evaluate it, so you put down what's the good and bad parts about this thing you're experiencing, this network experience, or whatever it might be. So the positives and negatives. You then analyse, so given that these are the problems, but these are the good things, I need to put loads of time and effort into these bad things. And as you start evaluating it, you then analyse what's going on, reflecting on what works, what doesn't, and then conclude. So these are the bad things, I fixed those bits and pieces, these things are okay, so I left them alone. Overall now, I'm feeling that this thing's going to work reasonably well to this extent. And then you put an action plan in place, I've figured it all out, this is what I'm going to do to make this all hunky-dory. Gibbs reflective cycle. Ward, Keogh and Walker's model, three stages of reflection on practice, so a slightly different way of looking at the same thing. Um, experience, so consider things, look at things, feel how things are working. Okay, if you're if you're working in a new job, for example, the first thing you do about it is just you'd go there, wouldn't you, and sit and listen and, and soak it in and experience it. You wouldn't actually do anything until you knew what you were doing, I suppose. Um, then you reflect on it. So when you go home after your first day in your work practice, you say, that was pretty good, but I don't really like working in that <laughs> section. I don't like that person very much. I'm going to keep out of their way or whatever. And then outcomes. So you've got a new perspective. You go back home. You've done your industry placement. You have a reasonably good week or whatever. At the end of the week, you say, well... I really enjoyed it. I've never done this stuff before. I really enjoyed that. I think I'm going to change my career and go down that 
direction. Otherwise, that's how the learning takes place. Does that make sense? So you reflect, you experience it, and then you make some sort of change to your behaviour in order to go forward in a different direction. Right, so creativity technique. Right, creativity technique is trying to take people's experience and solve the problem for them. Again, all of you are in the business of solving problems, aren't you? Whether they come to you with a load of data that they want fixed, or they come to you with a broken network, or some sort of problem software, you're the ones that have to fix that. So how do you go about that? What do you need to do? So first of all, it's no good solving the problem because it's good for you. So say so I've fixed your problem and it's working beautifully for me. They say, well, you didn't ask me. That's exactly what I didn't want. Why did you solve it for yourself and not for me? I'm the end user, etc. So the customer comes first, don't they? So first of all, what do they need? What is the solution they're looking for? Well, you have to ask them what it is they actually need. What do they expect to work? What do they expect to get out of this system in order to make it how they want it? Right? And you need to have some empathy with them. It may be that you say, in your mind, you're thinking, why are they doing it that way? That is totally wrong. Right? You can't say that because it's down to them how it works. So empathise. Can you feel what they feel? You may disagree with them, but the customer is always right. What is the problem? Can you define it? What does that mean? Right, it means going into some sort of sub-details. What is the definition of the problem? Right, you need to explain it in some detail and break it down. This is about decomposition of the problem. The more you can break it down into subsections, the more solvable it becomes. And it may be you break it down and say, actually, I don't know how to solve that at all. Then you go and find somebody that's expert in that particular area. You then create. Yes. How much do you think we're going to be examining oh, the first learning? Uh, I think they'll probably pick one of them and just say, yeah. what is the advantage of a learning site? And just say, for example, this one, even if you don't remember all of it, goes through a couple of phases which just help you understand the process. So you don't think they'll ask us to list all the phases of one in particular? I don't think so. They might pick, might pick something like Cold and say, do you know roughly what this does? Yeah, probably like that. I don't think they'd expect you to go into that level of detail because there's so much stuff. That'd be, too, that'd be a bit too difficult. Oh, we are level three. Louis! Yeah, apparently I'm making geniuses. No, you're not level three, though. You're not supposed to be reading hypothesis. Don't hold me to that. Hypothesize. So, if I make a hypothesis, it's obviously going to go towards some type of solution. If I think my hypothesis is this network is going to be 50% faster or whatever, then that's what I've got to work towards. So my hypothesis is what I think the end result is. Again, it's not written in stone, I'm not going to be held to it, but that gives me a good working point. If I set myself hypothesis and say, this network's going to be 10% faster, then I've got something to work against and, and be tested against as well. Uh, then another part of it is, is challenging assumptions. Lots of people will have certain assumptions, preset assumptions, based on your experience and your technological understanding. Right? So I assume, as an assumption, that when we log on to these networks, everything works. Right? That's my assumption when I walk in. When I come in September the 1st, in a, in a new school year or college year, I expect things to work, that's my assumption. I get on and things don't work, then I've got to try and figure out why. Same thing for you. You need to make an assumption when you go to a client site, what is... What am I likely to see in this site? What is the nature of it? What do I need to fix? What are they dealing with? So you need to make an assumption to help you figure out the problem solving. Right, so you map those. 
put down what your assumptions are. I assume they're running Windows 95. I assume they're doing this. I assume they're doing that. Then you can start, start working out where the problems are. Prototype feedback loops. So again, you make out some type. It may be you're only responsible for one part of the project. So you work out a solution. You put it in place. You say there's the solution, and you work on it until it's fixed. That's a feedback loop. Conduct qualitative research with users. Qualitative as opposed to quantitative. Anyone? Something you can measure and something you can see. Yeah, quantity, remember, quantity, quantitative number, 50% better. Uh, qualitative is a sort of gut feeling. I just love the way it works. Right? There's no way to measure that, but the person's very happy. It's got it's some type of measure. It's not something physically measurable, but it is something that's measurable of sorts. Yeah? It's much better quality. Yeah? There's no, your, your idea of quality is probably slightly different from mine, so it's not something that can be, get, can be agreed to, but 50% of £100 is 50% of £100, whether it's you, me, or anyone else. No? Right? So it's a fixed quantity, but quality is, is variable. Your idea of quality might be slightly different from mine. Uh, validate, disprove assumptions. So again, part of the learning process, the whole thing about, anyone do science, GCC? The provability principle, everything is, everything is false until proved otherwise. Yeah. Even Einstein's theory could at one point be proved wrong. It's not necessarily true, but it's only true until it's proved otherwise. Right. So again, you make assumptions in order to be disproved. I assume this network is running at 50% capacity, and you've then got to prove yourself wrong and disprove that assumption. That's the, the scientific principle, isn't it? And in networking and fixing stuff, problem solving, that's what you do, isn't it? You say, I've been sent onto this task at this company, they want me to fix their network, I assume the network's either the server or the switches or this, that and the other, and you test everything until you disprove what's wrong and fix it. Right, so that's the learning sort of cycle, if you like. You make an assumption, you test different things, you end up finding the problem, you fix it. And then you reflect, what did I do? Because next time I go on a site, I can fix it really quickly because I know what the problem's like to be because I've, I've already figured all that stuff out. And then finally, the iterative approach. Iterative means do it again and again and again until you get it done. So iterate, do it again. Any questions on that one? Seven to three. Oh, seven point four. Do we need to go through this one? This is sources of knowledge. No. Right. Where no. If you go on site, you need to fix a problem. If you don't know what the answer is, manuals. look up manuals, user guides, look yeah. on the internet, Wikipedia. Manual website. And the reliability. Yeah. And, yeah, and the key thing then, we'll go through the reliability. So those are all the different types of things you can use. White and yellow papers. Red papers. Oh yeah, remember those, do you? White papers and green papers, yeah, remember those? Yeah. What's the difference? Uh, one of them is government, like, like House of yeah. Commons. Yeah. Yeah, green paper is, is what they expect to happen, they push it through. Once it's all, white once it's all done, it becomes a white paper, then it gets signed by the Queen. Signed by the Queen. But that's in, that's in, that's in the government. I think white papers in, white papers in tech world are like free user guides for download. We had that question on our text. Did you? What white paper was? Yeah. Did you? On one of them. It's white paper. Yeah. Information given by the government and proposals of ideas. It is, yeah. So like the government, it is a white paper in government, so, but this is tech world. So white papers are free 
information guides about how a system works. So I've downloaded loads of white papers on how Windows Server works or how this server works, how that equipment works, etc. So a white paper is usually given by a vendor about how their equipment works and how best to use it. It isn't something that's part of the user guide. So I'm confused on that one. So unlearn what I told you before, because that's about government and politics. White papers are things usually given by manufacturers about how to use their products or some great thing about their product, so which you probably didn't know. Like a marketing type thing, almost. Not quite like a manual, not as detailed as a manual. So like a white paper, white paper at the moment might be, this is why the cloud is important from a company that makes cloud-based equipment. They're not saying no, buy no, our equipment, they're saying the cloud's great. They're, as they're just promoting the, cloud stuff, as they're just promoting the area as a whole. Yeah, indirect marketing. So they say the cloud's great. And you say, well, who wrote this? Oh, it's this company that sells cloud stuff. Oh, it's so like buy their promoting stuff. Like, uh, like a whole type of like, like NVIDIA. It's a bit like, like seven, promoting seven, an idea. And, yeah. It's a bit like when we did that um, ITIL thing with David, and everywhere you would click would be an ITIL guide. And, the, and then the website would be ITIL so great, but do use ITIL. Here's a guide, our guide that you can buy to look up what ITIL actually is. Yeah, I mean, using your example, it's Nvidia it's might produce a white paper saying yeah. why why these types of GPUs are the best for yeah. certain kind of games. And it won't it won't necessarily mention its own products, but the underneath it, you're saying, well, this is written by Nvidia, so maybe yeah. I should buy their stuff. So they don't mention their stuff, but they mention the area. Yeah, it's really useful information like that. Um, but again, pinch of salt, those white papers are written by companies that make stuff like that, so they may be biased. <laughs> so, if all of these sources of information, it's about reliability, about effectiveness. Um, again, the people that write these papers, how expert are they? You know, the thing on the internet, you can't easily validate people that write. Anyone can make a web page if they want to. So how expert are those people? Can you validate it, cross-reference it? So I've got to check. How much bias is there? We talk about those white papers. If you get white papers about the cloud from companies like Cisco, they're going to be very biased towards equipment that even not, they aren't saying directly, but it'll sort of say in between the lines, you should buy our stuff, it's the best. So there is some bias. How much evidence do they produce? Again, lots of these white papers may have one or two references. They won't be, they won't be peer-assessed academic papers which are really detailed and really cross-referenced and, and, again, very detailed research. Uh, a lot of these, a lot of this information, particularly on websites, is going to be very subjective. We think NVIDIA is the best company ever, right? They would say that, otherwise they're going to get fired, aren't they, the marketing team? So there is subjectivity in it. They like it, so therefore they're going to promote it. best GPU They're not the best company, they're the best GPU company. Yeah. But it may not be biased. Right? If, you, if Nvidia said we're the, we're the best GPU company, probably statistically they probably are, aren't they? Yeah. But if they said, um, if they said our, our graphics cards have um, improved the world by 42%, so it's, it's not something you could say is hard evidence, really, but it, it sounds good. Well, probably do more and if you don't check it, you say, wow, they're so good for the environment, you know, because you might not be able to double check it. As I say, they probably do more than 42% of the graphics cards, are they? They probably do, yeah. Yeah. And they probably, yeah, they probably have improved the world, haven't they? Yeah, more, yeah. yeah. I'm running Word on 120 FDX. Right, so the other thing about reliability is the context. If these things are produced in the context, which is very biased or subjective, then take with a pinch of salt, I guess. Check the reliability. 
What is the intended audience? Most of those white papers and wiki pages and stuff are for very technical people. Right? If you're not technical, will they make any sense to you? How have they been written? Uh, date of publication. If the publication was published four or five years ago, it's probably not relevant anymore. So if you pick up an article and go, wow, this is great, and then you look at the date, oh, uh, that's all been proved wrong. Yeah, so like check the date. You always search stuff online um, for like what's the best uh, what's the best monitor out right now, and it always come up with ones from like five years yeah. ago. Right, same thing. I go into forums and they and they say you need to do this fix and this fix, and I look at the date. And think, well, that's ten years ago. Right, but then when you see a forum and it's like four years old and it still has the route, so you just like some some it might some things might be okay because some some stuff just is always the same and somebody will recycle it back and say this came up four years ago but it's still relevant because some things never get fixed. Like the best phone company is always that. Yeah. Uh, so, collaboration resources. Can you go and cross-reference this stuff? If you see information, can you check it on some other website or two or three websites or book? I don't think Paul has it. Just to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you have? Linux. It's got Linux. It's got a Linux phone. It's got a Linux phone, yeah. Is that actually Linux brand? No. It is a Linux brand. It's called UB Ports. UB Ports. It's run on Linux Ubuntu. Oh. Uh, and then finally, citation. So you should check references on documents. If you can go to, like, if you look at Wikipedia pages these days, increasingly you have a citation saying this is from this person who's an expert, this is from this person who's an expert. If they don't have that, you can't really rely on it particularly. But again, how do you know if they're experts or not? It does take a bit of research. All right, that's learning done. So we've got four left. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hopefully you learned something. If you didn't, listen to it again. You might actually learn.